the beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, a very special edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show tonight because we're going to revisit the Major League Baseball season coming up in our second half hour tonight. But in the first half hour, we're going to preview the game this evening between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cleveland Browns in that all-Ohio showdown. And Johnny Manziel is going to get his night on the platter for the Cincinnati Bengals, and we're going to talk about that coming up in just a little bit. And like I said, we'll talk Major League Baseball in the second half hour with our ultimate sports talk, baseball expert Mark Donahue, also my co-host on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. All that coming up on tonight's program, but first... Well, the Browns are going to play tonight in Cincinnati on the Thursday night game of the week. Johnny Manziel gets the start for the Browns because starting quarterback Josh McCown is unable to play due to that painful rib injury. So Manziel's going to go tonight against the Cincinnati Bengals, who treated him so rudely as a rookie in Cleveland last year, and now they get him on their home turf in the River City. In his first NFL start last season, Menzel was chased, sacked, intercepted, and taunted by the Bengals in a 30 to nothing embarrassment. Now, Manziel is going to face one of the league's four remaining unbeaten teams on short notice. CBS Sports NFL analyst and former Browns player Sean O'Hara expects him to have a tough night. I expect to see him run around a lot. And, you know, it's really, it's almost unfair to throw him on a short week against this defense because Paul Gunther, he is, he's made a living at confusing quarterbacks. I remember watching Peyton Manning last year when they played the Bengals and they were showing one coverage at the snap of the ball and all of a sudden, boom, safety started flying everywhere. Guys that looked like they were blitzing at the line of scrimmage were dropping into coverage. So uh, it's going to be a tough task for him and, and they're not running the football very well. Um, I think they're, they're last in the mm-hmm. NFL in, in, in their rushing offense. They can't stop the run on defense. Um, he's w- there without a bunch of players. Uh, Dante Whitner is out with a concussion. Um, so is Joe Hayden. So it's going to be a tough task for him. But uh, one of the things that impressed me when he stepped in against the Jets, he wasn't just calling the plays. He wasn't just calling the offense. He was commanding the offense. At the line of scrimmage, he was doing a great job uh, of seeing the blitz and getting the ball out quick, a couple of bubble screens. Um, and readjusting the protection, stuff that he didn't wasn't ready to do as a rookie. Uh, so he's definitely made some strides. Well, this is going to be the second start of the year for Manziel, who won against Tennessee in Week 2 when McCown was sidelined with a concussion. Manziel replaced McCown late in the second half in the past two weeks, and he won that lone start this season, completing 8 of 15 passes for 172 yards and two touchdowns in a 28-14 to win over the Titans. But get that stat, 8 of 15. He only threw the ball 15 times. And why was he able to be so successful passing the football and not attempting very many passes? It's because that was the only game this year that the Browns have been able to successfully run the football. And it was done against Tennessee, a team that just fired Ken Wisenhunt, their head coach, two days ago. So the Titans are not exactly the Titans of the NFL. Manziel in that game, though, he did what he always does. He fumbled twice on plays where he was under pressure. 
The Heisman Trophy winner in 2012, who is also being investigated by the NFL for a recent domestic dispute, will be able to show a primetime TV audience his improvement since his rookie season. The Browns front office supposedly have been pleased with Manziel's dedication and progress following a rough first year, which was followed by a lengthy stay in a rehab facility for an unspecified problem. All except for the reports that the coaching staff and players have a rift over Manziel. Now, two days ago was the trade deadline. And Ray Farmer, whom we're going to get into in just a little bit, tried to trade all-pro left tackle and possible Hall of Fame candidate Joe Thomas to the Denver Broncos. And that was reportedly over Thomas's displeasure with Manziel. And reportedly, he is not the only one who is upset with Manziel in that locker room. And when he had the problem for the recent domestic dispute, it was all over the fact, again, reports are saying, that Manziel is upset that he lost his starting job. There is a rift between the front office and the coaching staff over Johnny Manziel. It's there. It is apparent. The front office wants Manziel as the starter. The coaching staff wants to win football games and keep their jobs next year. So they want McCown as the quarterback. The front office is always going to win. One way or the other, they will win this struggle. But when they win it is a good question. And then there's the Bengals. They're unbeaten in seven games this year, yet not much respect looms for Marvin Lewis's squad. A victory would propel the Bengals to a never-before-seen 8-0 record and would continue to extend their already massive lead over the rest of the AFC North. As important as that is, a win, or at least a well-played game from Cincinnati's offense, could cement Andy Dalton's legitimacy as an MVP candidate. Already this season, we've seen the case for why the fifth-year quarterback should be in the middle of that conversation. Yet according, again, to Sean O'Hara, not many people are jumping on the Andy Dalton bandwagon yet. To me, the, the biggest hurdle for him really was that Seattle game and his team is down in the fourth quarter they're down 24 to 7 and he finds a way to rally them back and, and to me you know he made a couple of big throws to AJ Green in that game but mm -hmm. the fact that the Seattle Seahawks had a couple of busted coverages they didn't cover Tyler Eifert and Cam Chancellor and you know he's coming back uh, you know from from missing to the holdout I, I thought that Andy Dalton seeing that and being able to check away from Andy, A.J. Green and say, all right, I'm going to beat you with somebody else, uh, that showed a lot of maturity for him. And, and you know, he's become a leader. I, I think everybody on this offense, they no longer look at him like, hey, you know what, he, he's just a young pup. I think he's really kind of grown into that red hair, and, he, and he's become a fire plug for them. The Pittsburgh game was huge. Yeah, he threw a couple picks, but uh, he still, when, it, when it's crunch time and he's got to make that big throw, he stepped up uh, you know, three weeks in a row, really. I think the Bengals have their quarterback in Andy Dalton. I liked him when he came out, and I still like him as quarterback of the Bengals. And short of winning a playoff game, the one thing Dalton hasn't consistently done throughout his career is win on the big game nights, Thursday night, Sunday night, Monday nights. Last year's late season Monday night win over Denver proved he could do it, and now it's time he strings together multiple performances like that one. The kickoff is at 8 o'clock on the NFL Network, and there is no doubt who I am picking to win this football game tonight. I am going with the Bengals to go 8-0 over the lackluster Cleveland Browns.
Well, we haven't used this theme very often in the weeks past. It used to be my good, the bad, and the ugly segment. Well, I'll tell you what, there is no good in this week's segment when we talk about the Ray Farmer press conference that was held two days ago. There's only bad and ugly. He met with the media in Berea on Tuesday. It was the first time he had spoken in a press conference since returning from his four-game suspension for texting the field from the press box. And believe me when I say it, it left more questions than the questions that he answered. So let's start at the top. And these are very short answers. Farmer stated the organization needs to keep doing what they have been doing. Just work hard, put in the effort, the time, and the energy, unearth better players, unearth uh, better opportunities for our guys, and try to grow it as we, as we see fit. Well, there's one word for that. Duh! Of course! That's what every organization would say. Unfortunately, I don't think Ray Farmer has put in the time, the effort, or the consistency into doing what he's doing to try to put together this team. Farmer has had four number one picks in the last two drafts, and only one is playing, and that's Danny Shelton at nose guard. And do you know how hard it is for a nose guard, especially as a rookie, to make waves? Shelton may be playing very well, but he's a nose guard. He's double teamed on every play. You can't tell what he's doing. Yeah, nose guard is the toughest position to play in football. And with the Browns second to the last in protecting against the rush this year, is Danny Shelton really doing the job at nose guard? Now, Manzella is going to start tonight, but that's because of an injury. Justin Gilbert is relegated to returning kicks, and he doesn't even do that very well. If you watch him do that, if he's five, six yards deep in the end zone, he just downs the football. He does not want to get hit. And who knows when we're going to see Cam Irving. Players come along at different points in time. Guys grow, and I've said it routinely, that guys grow at different rates. So until the movie's over with, we'll just continue to evaluate and see where they go. You want guys to play. You want them to play right away. You want to put them in there. and You want them to, to go to the Hall of Fame and the Pro Bowl. I wish they all were, again, to give you the easy one, I wish they all were, Joe Thomas. You just come in, and guess what? You plug and play. He goes to the, Hall of, he goes to the Pro Bowl. He never miss a snap, and the movie never, you know, movie never stops. But that's not the reality for 99% of the people in this league is that they have a learning curve, and some guys are steeper than others. Well, these guys aren't even learning. They're not even good enough to get out on the field and learn. That's the problem. And then there is Gilbert, and Farmer is certainly looking at Gilbert through rose-colored glasses. You know, when he gets his opportunities, I think he's embraced the, the notion of what he's had and the opportunities he's been given. So as he continues to give his opportunities, he'll continue to grow with those. What opportunities? I'm not complaining about Mike Pettin here, but this guy can't even get an opportunity on the practice field because he doesn't play well. This was the first pick Ray Farmer made as GM. You could sit there and say it was actually a Mike Pettin pick, but the buck stops with Ray Farmer. And Farmer seems to think that Manziel can still be a, start, a quality, quality starting quarterback in the NFL, which I totally disagree with. To me, all I need to do is look at the contract that Farmer signed Dwayne Bow to. $9 million for one season. One season. And this guy has been on the field five plays in the first eight games. Haslam should fire Farmer just for that. Bring him into the room and say, Ray, what were you thinking signing this guy to a $9 million contract? Does he have pictures with you and someone somewhere? Haslam should fire him just for that. But Farmer... Of course, 
He has a great explanation. I think that every guy that comes to the Cleveland Browns is a Browns decision. And as we kind of move forward, um, it is what it is. Dwayne, Dwayne is in the circumstances he's in, and it's our job as the Browns to try to get Dwayne as many catches and opportunities as he earns and deserves. you got to go through this whole thing, and you got to see the movie to the end. Um, to re- the reality is that my seat's no warmer than it was the day I got it. That's a, that's a perception that everybody has for me and not a perception I have for myself. So as I work through it, I'm going to continue to do the best that I can with, with what I have. And, I'm a, I'm a, again, it sounds corny or it sounds like it's a scoutism. I'm just going to grind at it. I'm going to continue to try to find players, whether it be the college draft, whether it be via free agency, whether it be the guys that are internally in this building that um, get a chance to step up and, and demonstrate that they're capable. We're just going to continue to push in the right directions and the right ways, and we'll let the, we'll let the proof stand for itself. Like I said, this, this, win, this league's about winning. It's, not, it's, no, it's no secret. And when you don't win, it's no fun. And this has been no fun to watch this team play. What movie is this, by the way, that Ray Farmer's talking about? Is it Trainwreck? It's certainly not Draft Day, because Farmer is more like Amy Schumer than he is Kevin Costner. This isn't fun. Nothing is fun about this. Two number ones for Joe Thomas. Why? Ray Farmer can't draft players anyway. What do they need number one draft picks for? There is no future. You can take every position that this team has right now. You can go down the depth chart of every position on the field. Wide receiver, left guard, right guard, right tackle, right guard, quarterback, center, running back, defensive, linebackers, defensive secondary. There is no future on this team. There is nobody that you can point your finger to on that two-deep chart and say, boy, an A year or two, three years down the road at the most, that guy is going to be something to watch. There's no future on this team right now. And that only can lead to one thing, and one thing only. Jimmy Haslam has to fire Ray Farmer immediately. Now, elsewhere around the NFL this weekend, let's take a look at the schedule on the 1 o'clock games. First of all, the Green Bay Packers are going to be in Carolina taking on the Panthers. This one should be a real good game, but I expect the Packers to bounce back over the Panthers after losing that game on Monday night. The Washington Redskins will be in New England to take on the Patriots. That's an easy one to pick. The Pats will win that. They've, they're playing this entire year with a chip on their shoulder. The Saints... Well, they are home against the Titans. The Titans have Mike Malarkey as their new head football coach on an interim basis. The Saints, meanwhile, well, they're playing out the string. I still expect the Saints to win this one at home. Buffalo will win at home over the Miami Dolphins. The Rams are in Minnesota to take on the Vikings. That's going to be a great game, but I expect the Rams to win that one. Jacksonville is in New York to play the Jets. I'll take the Jets. The Steelers host the Oakland Raiders. Boy, this game years ago would have been a great one. It's just starting to get back on the rival screen. I'm going to take the Steelers to win that one as Roethlisberger has worked the rest out of his body. The 4 o'clock games at 4.05, the New York Giants will be in Tampa Bay. I've got the Giants winning that one over the Bucks. Also at 4.05, the Falcons will be in San Francisco. The Falcons easy on that one. And at 4.25, the only 4.25 game, the Broncos will beat the Colts in Indianapolis. At 8.30 on Sunday night, the Cowboys will take on the Eagles, and I've got the Cowboys winning that one at home over Philadelphia. And the Monday night game, the Chicago Bears are in San Diego to take on the Chargers, and I've got the Chargers winning that football game over the Chicago Bears. And finally in the NFL tonight, the only other team that may be as inept as the Cleveland Browns in the front office are the Detroit Lions, and they made strides today to take care of that situation. After a 1-7 start, the Lions announced today they have fired general manager Martin Mayhew. 
and team president Tom Luand. Lions owner Martha Ford addressed the firings of the GM and team president at a press conference earlier today. Earlier today, we informed Tom Lewan and Martin Mayhew that they may have been relieved of their responsibilities with the team. We thank them both for their many years of service to the team and to our family. We are very disappointed with the results of the season so far and believe a change in leadership was necessary. On an interim basis, Sheldon White will be acting general manager and will report directly to me. On the business side, Allison Mackey will be the interim COO and also report directly to me. I have informed Coach Caldwell of our decisions. Also, no, no changes have been made to our coaching staff. As of today, we are beginning a national research search for the best leadership to manage our team going forward. I want to assure our fans that we intend to identify and hire the very best leadership in order to produce a consistently winning football team. Our, our fans deserve a winning football team, and we will do everything possible to make it a reality. Mayhew had been with the Lions organization since 2001 and the team's general manager since Matt Millen was fired in late 2008. Luan had been with the franchise for 19 years, including five seasons as team president. Mayhew has been far from perfect during the draft. Gee, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The Lions have no players left on the roster from the 2010 or 2011 drafts, including first-round selections and Dominican Sue and Nick Fairley. The Lions have also been unsuccessful with second-round picks, including receivers Titus Young and Ryan Broyles, running back Mikel LeSure, safety Louis Delmas, and linebacker Kyle Van Noy. And those are names that you're never going to hear again probably on this show. So with this move, the hourglass appears to be running low on Coach Jim Caldwell, even though Ford said during the press conference, as you heard, Caldwell and the coaching staff are remaining as of now. And one wonders what the long-term status of quarterback Matthew Stafford will be. Stafford was a number one pick several years ago, you remember. He's led the Lions to the playoffs twice, but this year has just been atrocious. He's on par to throw 26 touchdown passes, but he also currently has 10 interceptions thrown. Well, another weekend of college football, and the first rankings have come out. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But right now, the Ohio State Buckeyes and Junior Cardell Jones, well, he's back as starting quarterback of the Bucks, and they aim for their 22nd consecutive victory when they host Minnesota in Saturday's Big Ten contest. Sophomore J.T. Barrett has taken over as starter, but he is suspended for this game after being arrested for operating under the influence of alcohol last week. We all know how that went down. Ohio State is 10-0 with Jones as the starter, and they're seeking their 29th consecutive Big Ten victory, which would tie the record set by Florida State from 92 through 95 for most consecutive conference victories. Since being inserted in the third quarter of the Buckeyes game against Penn State three weeks ago, Barrett was 18 for 23 passing, 
with 253 passing yards and five TDs and 24 rushes for 203 rushing yards and four touchdowns on top of that. But this is a second chance for Cardell Jones to reclaim the starting quarterback spot after being relegated to second string prior to the Rutgers game. So the Gophers will have to contend with a very motivated quarterback on Saturday. Buckeyes coach Urban Meyer was asked about Jones' unusual opportunity to return as the starter. I would imagine, I have not talked to him about this, I would imagine as a competitor and a guy that wants to play, is this is a shot to uh, be the starting quarterback because you are at Ohio State, and we'll worry about next week, next week. But, I, you know, he's human and he's a competitor, so I would imagine, you know, that uh, that's what he's doing. But we all know there's one way to do that, play well, win the game. Who's the backup? Well, it's going to be the former starter. Braxton Miller, and he is ready to go, and Urban Meyer isn't worried about that whatsoever. I just think he's become a very functional. He can play 40 plays now, and I'm not worried about him. First four games, you know, was he lining up wrong? Does he understand how to block? Does he understand to do the things that receiver in this offense has to do? But, you know, I just... Uh... Not very comfortable. You know, I just hate to think someday I'm not going to get the coach and we've had four great, I guess five now, no, four great years together. And uh, he's, he's, he's had an incredible week of practice. Just shows up and goes about his business. Kickoff for the Buckeye game on Saturday night will be 8 o'clock. That game is going to be on ABC. Well, the Buckeyes are ranked third in the initial college football playoff rankings as they continue to be in position to defend their national championship. Undefeated Clemson is number one. Why? I don't know. That's the problem. Clemson doesn't deserve to be the number one team. The number two team probably deserves to be the number one team. That's LSU. Then comes Ohio State, and Alabama is number four atop this season's first rankings. Last year, at this time, Meyer watched the polls. This year, it's a different story. You know, I just think those people got a tough job. I know last year this time we're 16th, and I think everybody's kind of, you know, at least everybody in, the, in our profession is, let's, let's keep going, man. There's a lot of football and how the rankings come out. I don't know. we got to worry about today was third down in red zone and move forward. I didn't even address it with our team. You know, I, I thought I might, but we have too much to do. And I think the Buckeyes do have a lot to do. Well, there are some games tonight in college football. In the top 25, number two, Baylor, they've got a new quarterback. They are going to be on Fox Sports 1 tonight playing Kansas State. And also at 9 o'clock tonight on ESPN, number 24, Mississippi State will be at Missouri. Now, on games Friday night, there's just one. Number 23, Temple, after losing their first game last week, they will be at Southern Methodist to play the Mustangs in that one. Now the game's on Saturday. At noon on ESPN, Vanderbilt will be at number 11, Florida. On ESPN2 at noon, Duke will be at number 21, North Carolina. At 12 noon on ABC, number 8, Notre Dame is at Pittsburgh. At 1 o'clock on the Pac-12 network, it is Stanford, number 9, at Colorado. At 3.30 on ESPN2, Cincinnati will be at number 18, Houston. And Houston is still unbeaten. The Cougars playing well. At 3.30 on ABC, Florida State, number 17 in the country, goes to number 3, Clemson, and number 1 in the playoff rankings. The Clemson Tigers. At 3.30 on ESPN, number 10 Iowa will be at Indiana. On the Big Ten Network at 3.30, Rutgers is at number 16, Michigan. At 3.30 on Fox, it's TCU, number 5 in the country, at number 12, Oklahoma State. That's a battle of the unbeatens. And on CBS Sports at 3.30, it will be Arkansas at number 19, Ole Miss. At 4.30 on the Pac-12 Network, number 22, UCLA, plays Oregon State. At 7 o'clock on ESPN2, Navy goes to unbeaten and number 15, 
Memphis. At 7 o'clock on ESPN, number 6 Michigan State will be at Nebraska. At 7 o'clock on ESPN U, it is Iowa State at number 14 Oklahoma. At 7.30 on the SEC Network, Auburn will be at number 25 Texas A&M. On Fox at 7.30 on Saturday, it's number 13 Utah at Washington. The Saturday night game of the week on ABC, it's Minnesota at number one Ohio State, like we said. And at 8 o'clock on CBS, it will be number four LSU taking on number seven Alabama. And the winner of this game will be in very good position going forward. Leonard Fournette says the thought of this game gives him chills. Uh, Sportsline says the thought of this game gives Alabama a 26-20 win. Randy, does Alabama keep that streak against LSU going? Well, there's some things about this game. You mentioned the rushing and whatnot uh, for LSU, 309 yards a game. The fact that the rushing defense is so good for Alabama. I mean, they're one of the best in the country. The one thing that sort of one of these stats doesn't belong in this game is LSU's passing game. They're 117th in the country. And Nick Saban loves to take stuff away. If they take even half the run away, I think LSU's in trouble. I'm going with Alabama at home. Mm. These teams, you mentioned that they're built for one another. They're actually built to beat one another, right? They're, what number, they're the number three and number four <laughs> rush defenses in the country. They've got the number one rusher in Fournette against the number nine rusher in Derrick Henry. I think this game comes down to who can throw the ball, as you just mentioned. And, and the key for Alabama is protecting their passer. Last time out against Tennessee, five sacks. I don't know if Cam Robinson's healthy, what the situation is, but they're going to have to protect Jay Coker because if they can, I think Ridley outside is a factor, as is uh, Stewart. I think both those kids are outstanding players. Alabama at home, they don't have any margin for error with the lost Ole Miss. I like Alabama. Oh. I'm going to take Alabama in this game, too, man. I was vacillating right before I just said I that. I talked you into it. Because no. you did talk me into it. Really? Now, hold on now. Let me explain myself. This well, is Ali Frazier. That is the quiddity of Aaron Taylor. Th- this is yeah. Ali Frazier. This is an old. Why are you trying to give him dap, Coach? Come on, man. <laughs> I use the word. I don't like being typecast like y'all trying to pin me in the corner now. Come on, Frazier. All right, here's the deal. There's no corner. Ali Frazier, fellas, the O-line of Alabama. The O-line of LSU against their respective front sevens, this is a former offensive line's dream game. To watch the trenches there, this is the way football should be played, with fullbacks, with tight ends. But I think in a game like this where it's so evenly matched, you take the better defense at home that can run the football, and because of that, I like Alabama. Ah. Mm-hmm. Go for it, BJ. Go for I it. I have not been vacillating on this one. I have been firm in my conviction, and I'm picking LSU. You look at that Alabama offensive line, they've allowed the most tackles for loss of any team in the SEC, and that LSU defense, my man, what's his name? Hmm? What's my man's name for LSU? Hmm? Louis Neal. Oh, you forgot. I have forgotten. <laughs> Watch number 92. He's going to get after Alabama, especially if they can get him third and medium to third and long. And you know about that stat. They don't convert third downs like they should there at Alabama. So it's going to be a slobber knocker. We know that. We'll be one in the ditches. But I like LSU in this ball game going on the road. They haven't beaten them since 2011 in the regular season. Yeah. It's been a while. In an enduring story that just will not go away, and one of those stories that you just wish would, Sue Paterno, the widow of former Penn State football coach Joe Paterno, sent a letter to Penn State Letterman today vowing to keep fighting to clear her husband's name. The letter was emailed less than a week from Monday's fourth anniversary of Joe Paterno's firing at Penn State. Paterno was fired in the wake of allegations that former assistant Jerry Sandusky sexually abused young men. 
Now, Paterno's widow says the Penn State Board of Trustees took a terrible tragedy and made it worse. At least one member of the board admitted to only skimming through the report. Well, how much of the report do you have to read? Sue Paterno concluded that because some issues are still being litigated, she is not allowed to comment further. Of course not. I said at the time, and I'm going to continue to say this for as long as this is a story. Paterno was either guilty of being stupid for not understanding what he was told by Mike McQuarrie or total incompetence for doing nothing. You can't have anything in between on this. Well, it was five games and out. The World Series is over. The Kansas City Royals avenged their defeat at the hands of the San Francisco Giants just a year ago, and they defeated the New York Mets four games to one and won this year's World Series. It was quite an eventful World Series, and of course the managerial openings are starting to be closed up. Let's welcome now to our Ultimate Sports Talk microphones, Mark Donahue, my co-host on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, which is on hiatus, but we'll be back the first Monday night in March 2016. Just a shameless plug there for us, Mark. But hey, Dusty Baker's back in baseball. He's with the Nationals. Is that a good fit? You know, I think it is a good fit. I think the Nationals, as you and I certainly miscalculated like everybody else did. We, we thought that team was not only going to win the division, but had a chance to win the World Series. And if you, if you look at the roster, you can understand how people would have uh, made that erroneous pick because they're loaded. They, they've got great starting pitching. They've got a, a great offensive team. But, uh, you know, they're, they're going to lose some players in free agency. They're still a very young team. And yet, they have some superstars on that team, too. And Dusty Baker, I think, is good with young players. And I think he's also good with superstars. I mean, he's he's managed Barry Bonds. He's managed Sammy Sosa. He's managed Ken Griffey Jr. So he knows how to stroke the egos and manage the clubhouse. My only beef with Dusty was I think he was too close to his players. And sometimes he made decisions that uh, maybe sued their egos rather than were the best were the best picks. And uh, for Washington fans, uh, I caution you that sometimes Dusty's lineups just don't make sense. <laughs> but I think where they are in their development as an organization, I think Dusty Baker was a good pick. Do you think he's the type of manager, Mark, that can bring out the best in Bryce Harper? Yeah, I think he will become a father figure to Bryce Harper. And when Bryce Harper, you know, inevitably will do a meltdown, as he is wont to do sometime during the year, I think Dusty will manage through that. Uh, I think he can be tough when he needs to be, and he will be. I, I think that uh, Bryce Harper, he's got ungodly talent. I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of a player who has more ability, just natural ability, than Bryce Harper. Uh, as a hitter particularly, but he's got a good arm. He's fast. He's, he's not a bad defensive player, uh, but his his talent has to rival Barry Bonds, and, and the numbers he could put up over his career I think are ungodly, and uh, I think Dusty's a, a good match for Bryce. You know, the one thing about Dusty, though, is he's 71 years old. He's taking over a team that should be in the in their prime right now. Is he a short-term or a long-term solution for this national team? 
Well, you know, that's the third age estimate I heard on Dusty Baker. What I read this morning was he was 66. I thought he was 67. Uh, and uh, so I, now, I've never heard 71, so I don't know where that came from. But uh, he, he's, let's say, I, I would bet he's in his late 60s. And there's been a trend of late that a lot of young managers have come on board. And, and not a lot of them have succeeded, frankly. So I think you may see the pendulum swing back to, you know, a more seasoned manager who's been around for a while. But you and I have talked before, it's not the X's and O's. It's not the, the, the bench managing that is a challenge for these guys. They've been around baseball their whole lives. And honestly, Dave, you and I both love baseball. But it, it is not a thinking man sport. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that tough to figure out uh, the basic strategies in baseball. What is more difficult is managing 25 egos and sometimes 40 egos when you talk about the 40-man roster and managing the press, um, managing the front office, the general manager, working through all the things not related to X's and O's on the field. And I think that's what a Dusty Baker can bring to the Nationals. Uh, again, he, he's a good, solid baseball man. And I'd say 95% of the calls on the field every manager would make, including armchair managers like you and me. Uh, so I, I just think he's the right mix. And I don't think he's a short-termer, I guess, because the uh, actuarial tables say he's not going to be around that much longer. But uh, I, I think the older, more experienced guys uh, are going to have a comeback. Well, one more question on Dusty. A lot of people thought that Matt Williams didn't use the bullpen correctly in Washington. How did Dusty handle the bullpen in Cincinnati, in your opinion? Well, he was just getting the front end of Chapman. So the ninth inning was a no-brainer uh, for Dusty. And um, the, the Reds actually had pretty good pitching when he was there. And uh, I didn't see any egregious issues in the bullpen. But don't forget, Brian Price was the pitching coach. And uh, he's the guy who he didn't, you know, I'm sure he made a lot of the calls on, on the bullpen. So the bullpen wasn't the Reds' problem. The Reds' problem at the time Dusty was managing was they didn't have enough inning. And, gee, not, not a lot has changed. <laughs> All right, let's stay with the managerial changes that have happened in Major League Baseball. And the surprise that I'm thinking, not so much that Don Mattingly left the Dodgers, but who they're going to interview coming up this coming week, and that's Kurt Gibson. And the reason that I think that's a surprise, Mark, is because he was diagnosed back in April with Parkinson's disease. That would be, I think it's a no-brainer that Kurt Gibson could be named the manager of the Dodgers, but with that, it's going to be a surprise if he is. You know, uh, I don't know if I agree with that or not. I mean, if, if, take the Parkinson's out of it for a second. Uh, that's treatable. A lot of guys, uh, Michael J. Fox being one of them, have led, you know, fruitful, productive lives after being diagnosed 25, 30 years ago. Uh, so that aside, when he was at Arizona, if you remember the first year he was there, everything was great. And then it fell off. The, the, the wheels fell off. And I think with Kirk Gibson and guys like that, who's a fiery guy in your face, takes no guff, all that stuff, that might last a year, but it after a while. And I think you need a more measured approach with some of these players today. Uh, was a very good manager, in, in my opinion. 
Uh, and I think in the second year in Arizona, he proved that. I mean, they again, they were favored to at least compete in the West, and they did not. I think he managed his last year as 2014. So um, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, he's a legend. With one home run, he becomes a legend in Dodger lore. Uh, but I'm not so sure he's the right mix for, for the Dodgers. Who is the right guy for the Dodgers then? Joe Madden. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's Joe got a Madden job. Is, uh, but, you know, Joe Madden, uh, not unlike Sparky Anderson, I think Sparky Anderson was a good manager, but you could have the, the, the biggest idiot in baseball managing the, the Cincinnati Reds back then, and they would have won a World Series. And the same when he went to Detroit. He, he, he made the right moves, and as many managers will attest, you become a great manager when you have great players. And somebody's going to walk into that Washington job, and it might be Dusty, and somebody's going to walk into that Dodger job with, with all the talent they've got and the budget, and voila, they're going to win a couple of World Series. Now, does that make them great managers? No, it makes them competent managers. But, again, you don't need to be a great manager to win with either of those teams. Mark, I'm going to throw out a name that nobody's thrown out. He'll never get the job. He won't be offered. He won't even be interviewed. But Mike Hargrove had the experience of managing a basket case in Manny Ramirez, and that's what Puig is. I don't think you pick a manager to manage one player. Uh, and no matter who the manager is, Puig is going to be Puig. I think the Dodgers will tire of him soon. And if he doesn't grow up, then he might. You know, he, he might turn it around and grow up. But you, you can't say, gee, I, I want to bring somebody in for a guy like Puig who may or may not be around in, in, in a year or two. And I, I thought Don Mattingly uh, was at best a mediocre manager. But he, he won, what, three consecutive division titles. But in this day and age, with those kinds of dollars being spent, if you don't win a World Series, that's what happened to Dusty Baker with the Reds. He got in the playoffs three out of four years. And had they won that one last game against the Giants and moved into the, the, the playoffs and made it to the World Series, he'd still be managing the Reds. That's true. Now, what about Don Mattingly? You bring up that name. He moves into Miami, and that, that just seemed to be a match made in heaven. Yes, and the reason I think that's a great move for him, the expectations have been dropped off dramatically. <clears throat> he, you know, he's a, he's a great, legendary player. The young players will respect him. The old players, like Longoria, they'll respect him. Uh, I think he's a good guy. And when you have the pressure, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Tampa Bay, uh, Tampa Bay job, but with Miami, uh, that roster is not expected to compete. And Mattingly, I think, is the right guy for it. Well, you know, Don Mattingly takes that over. What is going on with Bud Black? Is he pricing himself out of the managerial pool? I mean, I would think that even the Dodgers would want to take a look at him. In Washington, they announced that he was going to take the job, or at least it was rumored he was taking the job for at least a week, and then everything fell apart there. You never know what issues crop up when you're doing your contracts. Um I don't know if they learned something they didn't know before. I mean, everything I had heard about Bud Black was he, he was just a, a very competent guy. Uh, he, I think he did a great job in San Diego with not a lot of talent when he had the team. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. There aren't a lot of pitchers who become managers. 
And there are fewer who become World Series champion managers. I can't think of one that has been a pitcher that has gone on to lead a team to the World Series. Now, I know that's, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but it, it doesn't happen a lot. I'm sure of that. And I, I don't know why. You, you would think pitchers um, would have a good sense of the game, certainly with the pitching coaches, as a pitching coach. But most of them come up starting as a bullpen coach and then a pitching coach, and then they move in to be a manager. Well, but for some reason, it, it doesn't take. Well, Mark, did you enjoy the World Series? Uh, I think the Mets certainly overperformed during the regular season. And I wasn't surprised that they got blown out. Um, I, I don't know if you were or not, but uh, I didn't think they were that good a team, you know, going into the World Series. And Kansas City, I mean, I mean they're just relentless. And I, I think they are going to define for the next decade what teams are going to be made up of. And that's going to be speed, defense, and pitching, and forget about the power. And, you know, it, it's funny. The Reds had a lot of home runs last year. And um, they even stole some bases, but they they weren't able to move runners around, play small ball, hit to the opposite field, and most importantly, they struck out. And Kansas City does not strike out. They had the fewest strikeouts in the major leagues, and that's not going to escape general managers as they begin to to structure their rosters for 2016 and beyond. It, it's just so obvious when you can't strike these guys out and Kansas City another obscure statistic I heard they hit more foul balls than any team in baseball last year that means they're spoiling the pitcher's best pitch and staying in you know staying in the at bat and it just as a pitcher it drives you nuts you can't get the guy to swing a bad pitch or he fouls off a good pitch and the at bat just goes on and on and on and I think that's going to be a new trend that, you know, you home runs are not going to be, especially with now the steroid issue behind us. Uh, the power numbers have been down steadily the last five years and they'll continue to go down. Mark, Kansas City is a team that you just cannot commit errors against. You have got to play good baseball and, and you've got to beat them. If you go out and you commit an error or you give them any kind of an opening, they take advantage of it all the time and they don't beat themselves. They also hit to the opposite field. They know how to bunt. They steal bases strategically. When it's important, they steal a base. Uh, you know, hitting behind a runner, just moving the runner over, giving yourself up, all those things that were back in the 40s, 50s, and even 60s were part of baseball every day. We got out of it. We got out of that, and we fell in love with a home run. And that's been an issue that um, was exacerbated by the steroid use. But again, I think you're going to see general managers, especially these new general managers, these younger ones, who fall in love with sabermetrics. I mean, how many times have you ever heard the statistic, most foul balls hit by a team during the year? But it, it does indicate the kind of baseball they play. Keep the ball in play. Make the other team make a mistake. And uh, it, it does work. Well, Mark, you know, it's ironic that the managerial move of the World Series had to include Matt Harvey, whom we were talking about most of the season, especially the second half of the season, where his agent 
only wanted him to throw 180 innings. He ended up throwing over 220 innings, if you include all the playoff games and everything, and him basically demanding to be able to go out into that ninth inning of a 3-2 to two Mets lead in Game 5 and pitch that ninth inning after he had pitched so outstanding in that game. Did you agree with Terry Collins' move to go ahead and let him go out and start the ninth? I agreed with that. If my pitcher comes to me, and they haven't they hadn't put a bat on the ball hardly. I mean, he, he was blowing them away. And, uh, yeah, I would have taken, I'd have put him in the game. If he comes to me, it looks me in the eyes and says, Coach, I'm ready to go. Um, yes, I would have. Where I think Terry Collins made the mistake is after he walked the leadoff hitter, I would have gone and got him. I wouldn't have let, let him have an opportunity to blow the lead or lose the game. And that's precisely what happened. They, they blew the lead, then they ultimately lost the game. So, um, yeah, I would have let him go out there. I think most managers would. Unless you just saw the guy was losing his stuff, and there was no indication of that. But I couldn't figure out, especially um, uh, with Hosmer coming up. He's, he's such a good hitter. Uh, you know, going to the opposite field, and, and that's what he did. So I think, you know, the managers, you can't win that argument. If he pulls him out, he brings him to the bullpen, and they blow up, they're going to say, how could you be so stupid to take out a guy like Harvey? He was going so well. And then if what happened did happen, like with that situation, and the starter blows it, then he's criticized too. So it's a no-win situation, but I, I think he just stayed with him one bad or two many. You know, one more question about the Mets. You know, you mentioned that they had played so well, probably over their heads in the second half, but a lot of that had to do, it coincided with the, the trade for Cespedes at the trade deadline, and he came in and just seemed to rejuvenate that team and spurred them on to the division and then, of course, onto the World Series. Now there's talk about the Mets not even re-signing this guy. He's practically their MVP. I would think they've got... No alternative, Mark, but to re-sign Cespedes. I'm not so sure, Dave. If, if you look at the numbers, he came in after the trade deadline, and you're right. For six weeks, he killed it. But his last six weeks, the second six weeks, he hit. And he, he struck out a lot. And he did have a couple of big home runs in that period of time. But, you know, that's the kind of player he is. You know, he's a lifetime, what, 250 hitter? And uh, he, he reminds me a lot of Sammy Sosa when Sammy first came up. Sammy got better as he got bigger and stronger, but I think there's a lot of similarities between Cespedes and Sosa, but Sosa was a much better contact hitter. He would also hit for decent average. Cespedes, you know, would I like to have him in my lineup? Yeah, but is he going to hit 275, 280? No, he won't. He'll probably get 230 to 250, and he'll strike out a lot and provide you with some great power, but Again, I'm not sure that's where managers and general managers are looking to fill out the roster, especially for the money that's going to cost to get Cespedes. Mark, I've got two more questions for you before we go into our off-season uh, sabbatical, I guess you could call it. The first one is, in Game 1, Fox's broadcast was interrupted because their truck outside had lost power, and it caused the game to actually be delayed almost 15 minutes while they were waiting for that power to get back up in the Fox truck. Has television infiltrated the game of baseball too much? 
I hope that's a rhetorical question. Uh, of course it has, and it dominates baseball because of the money. And, you know, everything that, that revolves around baseball is about the money. It always has been. All, all professional sports. It's, it's not about the sports. It, it's a business. And, you know, all you have to do is look at the price for food in a major league baseball park, and you realize how absurdly uh, financially driven this thing is. Uh, you know, five dollar fifty cent hand uh, hot dogs and eight dollar beers and all this stuff. So, yeah, Fox is, is among the many of those who uh, pretty much rape the public in terms of, of dollars. And what, what bothers me more about TV than anything else is the number of commercials. And it, it, it's relentless. And during the playoffs, I think it was, you have three minutes between innings. And it drags out the game. And to me, it just, they talk about shortening the game. You and I have talked about this a hundred times during the regular season. If you want to shorten the game, shorten the commercials. That'll save you at least 45 minutes of a game, every game. Either charge more and have fewer sponsors or just do away with some of the commercials. Or make the commercials 20 seconds instead of 30. Yeah, you could do that. But all we do then is just bring in three commercials in a minute as opposed <laughs> to two. They'd find a way around it, wouldn't they, Mark? That's right. Mark, final question. What's, what's the hiring of Dick Williams with the Reds? Well, I, I hope it's an indication that the Reds are falling in line with the rest of the world. Now, he made a comment in the paper today that they have been using sabermetrics uh, for a number of years, and they've actually invested in that, bringing in statisticians and that kind of thing, and I hope they are. Uh, he says they're not going to give up their, their normal evaluation methods <clears throat> to the scouting department, which, which I agree with. But I was glad to see that a young man, 44 years old, is taking the reins. And the question will be, how much will Walt Jockety be looking over his shoulder? Because if he is and, and he's interfering, then I, I don't see much difference in, in the outcome. But if he looks at this as, as Williams, as a young guy, if the Reds say, okay, it's, it's your deal, go run with it. Uh, let him make some mistakes, and he probably will. But I, I think he brings a new uh, view to this that a lot of other teams have gone out and captured, and that's bringing in young, bright uh, general managers who believe in numbers and statistics. They look at the study them, and uh, I hope it has the right effect for the Reds because, I, frankly, I think they've needed that for a long time. Is Jockety still making the on-the-field decisions, or is Williams now? Well, they said that uh, Williams would be making them, that Jockety's going to be focusing a lot of off-the-field uh, responsibility, focusing on that. Uh, but, you know, that's you don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And they said they have been grooming this guy for eight years for this job, and, and I hope they have. He, he sounds like a bright guy who has some uh, some good ideas. But, you know, part and parcel of what a general manager does is work at the behest of the owner. And the owner, in this case, Castellini, is kind of a hands-on guy. Uh, he, he's gotten involved with, uh, you know, he has favorites on the team, like Jay Bruce is an example. He really likes Jay Bruce. Well, Jay Bruce at 218. Uh, and 
uh, the last two years, I think he's averaged two, what, 220, something like that. that <laughs> I don't care how much you like a guy. You just can't have that in your lineup. So I think the big issue, the big decision the Cincinnati Reds have to make this year is what do you do with Chapman? Do you you make him a starter for one year, increase his value? Well, if you do, you probably have one of the top starters. You have a Clayton Kershaw type guy in your your rotation. Do you trade him now and get something of great value for him, uh, or do you keep him in the bullpen? Those, those are big decisions. Those are decisions that revolve, arguably, one of the greatest pitchers uh, in, in the National League in the last 25 years, greatest arms. And I, I can't think of a better arm the Reds have had for the last 50 years. I, I don't know how you match that guy's talent. And the Reds have completely screwed that up. Uh, that they've got a talent like that, and they, they should have started him five years ago, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mark Donahue, our baseball expert on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Mark, one more question, one more prediction I'm going to ask you for the year 2015. This is it. Browns or Bengals? Bengals by about 21. (laughs) Uh, I think you're right. What do you think? I think you're right. I think you're right. I think the Bengals are going to make Johnny Menzel mincemeat tonight. They're going to have Menzel mincemeat after the game. Uh, was it last year, 30 to nothing with Manziel in there? Yes. Was, uh, yeah, I think the Bengals, the Bengals are for real, by the way. For those of you out there who sell it's the Cincinnati Bengals, no, this team is a good team. they got great defense. They've got uh, depth. Uh, they've got a quarterback playing out of his mind right now. And will they win a playoff game? Who knows? But right now, if I was any other team in football, I would not want to be playing the Cincinnati Bengals. Right now, I think they're about the second-best team in football behind New England. Uh, Maybe behind Ohio State, but that's another issue. (laughs) Mark Donahue, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you, Dave. Take care. Well, the NBA season is one week old. The Cleveland Cavaliers are 4-1 on the year after the victory last night over the New York Knicks, and they'll be at home tomorrow night facing the Philadelphia 76ers. And against the 76ers earlier this week, forward LeBron James became the youngest player in NBA history to join the 25,000-point club. On Monday, against the Sixers, he received an alley-oop dunk in the fourth quarter from Delhi to become the 20th player to hit the mark. Los Angeles Lakers guard Kobe Bryant was previously the youngest player to reach 25,000. He did it at age 31 years old in 2010 against James and the Cavaliers. Next on the list for LeBron, Jerry West, who scored 25,192 points. And speaking of Kobe Bryant, he's one of the greatest players in NBA history. And in this season, he is a player who cannot consistently shoot threes that hit the rim. Tuesday night against the Nuggets, he took 11 shots, four went in, three missed the rim, attempts that missed the mark by a matter of feet and not inches. Kobe struggles this year, and no secret. He's taking 15.5 shots per game, scoring 15.8 points, woefully inefficient. He's shooting a dismal 32.3% from the field and an absolutely horrid 20.8% from three-point range while still taking 8.5 shots per game from deep. But if I was a betting man, I would say Kobe's probably going to get his act together pretty soon.
Not a lot do we get to talk about the National Hockey League, and when we do, we bring in John Hartsmark. Tonight, that's not the case, and the story that we've got from the NHL is not on the ice. It's off the ice, where star Patrick Kane is not going to be charged following a three-month investigation into claims he raped a 21-year-old woman at his New York home, an upstate New York prosecutor announced today. Less than two months after indicating a grand jury would consider the case, Erie County District Attorney Frank A. Sedita III said that no physical or forensic evidence backs up the woman's allegations. He also noted inconsistencies between her accounts and those of the eyewitnesses. And finally on tonight's show, the three-person National Motorsports Appeals Panel today upheld Matt Kenseth's two-race suspension for deliberately wrecking Joey Logano Sunday at Martinsville Speedway. The three appeals panel members who made the decision were Langley, Virginia Speedway operator Bill Mullis, Bowman Gray Stadium operator Dale Pinellas, and motorsports consultant and former NASCAR executive driver Ken Clapp. A final appeal, which will be heard by the National Motorsports Final Appeals Officer, will be next Thursday at 1 o'clock. The first appeal began this morning at the NASCAR R&D Center in Concord, North Carolina, where the three-member appeal panel heard Joe Gibbs' racing case on behalf of Kenseth. NASCAR did not comment after the hearing other than to announce the decision. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. Glad you stuck around with us for this hour. Tomorrow night, we have got high school football action for you, and it is the Ohio State Playoffs where in Division 5, Region 16, the Waynedale Golden Bears will be traveling into northwest Ohio to take on the Swanton Bulldogs. This is the first time that Swanton has been in the playoffs since 1995. It's the first time for the Golden Bears since the year 2009, and it is the 10th all-time trip for the Waynedale Golden Bears. Pat Mitchell and I will have all the play-by-play action for you of Waynedale at Swanton beginning at 7 o'clock tomorrow night with the PNC Bank pregame show. And the kickoff is at a special time. It's at 7.30. All of the playoff games will be at 7.30. From if they go through, all of Division 5 will be played on Friday all the way through the state championship game. You can hear Golden Bear Rewind beginning at 6.30 tomorrow night here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Pat Mitchell and I with all the play-by-play action for you live from Swanton High School tomorrow night beginning at 7 o'clock with the pregame show and 7.30 with the kickoff. It is Waynedale at Swanton. Thanks to Mark Donahue, our guest this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, talking about Major League Baseball. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show. But, of course, most of all, our thanks go out to you for listening. Football action tomorrow night. I'll be back on the air next Thursday night with another Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Thanks for joining me here this evening. We'll be back again next week at 7 o'clock. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody.